Hello, everybody, and um, thank you very much for coming today. I'm Robert Buckingham, Creative Director of M Pavilion, and on behalf of the Naomi Milgram Foundation, um, I would like to welcome you to this very special architecture event. Uh, it's a standing room only event. A conversation with Glenn Merkett, led by Sean Godsall. Before I begin uh, with the introduction, as is customary, we acknowledge the Boonarong people, the traditional owners of the land uh, on which we meet and pay our respects to their land, their elders and to their ancestors. We'd also like to thank our many partners and collaborators for their support uh, of M Pavilion's, M Pavilion's free public event program throughout our four-month season. We especially thank the City of Melbourne, the Victorian State Government through Creative Victoria and the ANZ. M Pavilion is an initiative of the Naomi Milgram Foundation delivered as part of an innovative public-private partnership. Each year, a temporary pavilion is commissioned for these gardens by, and designed by a significant architect. It is then gifted to the City of Melbourne. This, our third M Pavilion, is designed by Indian architect B. Joy Jain of Studio Mumbai. Today, we are greatly honoured to have Glenn Merkett speak at M Pavilion. Glenn's just off the plane from judging the Pritzker Prize, as I understand. Um, and of course, he is also one of Australia's most celebrated and respected architects. He has received 25 Australian Architecture Awards, including the Australian Institute of Architects Gold Medal. He has also been awarded the Order of Australia for his contribution to architecture. His international awards are many including the Pritzker Prize in 2002, the Alva Aalto Medal and the Richard Neutra Award. He has been a visiting professor of architecture at many prestigious universities um, here and overseas and has a great commitment to architectural debate, education and research. Today, Glenn is in conversation with another acclaimed architect, Australian architect, Sean Godsell. Sean was indeed the architect of the inaugural M Pavilion, for which he recently was awarded the International 2016 Detail Award in Berlin. Without further ado, I would like to thank Glenn and, and Sean for this public conversation. Thanks, Robert. And um, th this is the second time I've had the privilege of interviewing Glenn. The first time was a few years ago. Uh, El Crocus from Spain asked me would I interview him for the monograph on Glenn's work. And I'll just just give you a, a bit of a feel about what that entailed. Um, I got to Sydney Airport, Glenn picked me up, we jumped in the car together and started talking and I think about five or six hours later we stopped talking. And fortunately I had the um, wherewithal to record the conversation um, and it was a lot of fun. So it's, it's a real privilege to have Glenn here in Melbourne. Um, and it's an opportunity to publicly acknowledge and thank him for six decades of dedication to our profession architecture. Um, um, and to discuss in a little bit more detail some of his extraordinary work. Um, so many of you would have seen the Harry Seidler documentary the other night. And... In the midst of it, there was Glenn recounting the, the fight um, that he was participating in on behalf of, of Woodson and the Opera House. And architecture is a fight. It's one big fight, really. 
Corbusier used to depict himself, depict himself as a boxer in sketches. We all fight for what we believe in in architecture. And maybe that's a good, good starting point for Glenn to, to, to reminisce on the battles that he's fought for, for his projects over, over all those decades. Well, thank you for that, Sean. Um, I don't know whether I've become a bit soft because I haven't had a court case for some 15 years, but I already had 12 by that time. The court cases were not to do with clients, so never fear clients. Um, it is when councils actually disapprove of the designs. And one of the great problems, of course, is I go back uh, 25, 35, 40 years ago when I started, and the work I was doing I thought was perfectly ordinary and perfectly uh, conservative in many ways, but everything seemed to get rejected by council. And the only way we we're able to, to, to get anywhere with it, you have, you have VCAT, we have the Land and Environment Court. And the only recourse is to go to the Land and Environment Court. And fortunately, I was awarded 12 of the 13 cases. The case I lost was with a, um, a barrister who's now head of the Land Environment Court. So we don't quite know what went wrong with that one, but uh, it, it's been a, it was a very big struggle. It used to take me five and six weeks for me to actually prepare the case and probably eight or nine weeks to get over it. It was an awful experience. Let me tell you, it was just awful. But if one wanted to achieve the sort of work one felt was was worthy of doing, the worthy worthy of ourselves being called architects, and let me tell you, there's a hell of a lot of merchandise being constructed today, a hell of a lot, and Melbourne contains a fair bit of it, I might tell you. It's not great, a lot of it. A lot of it is pretty, pretty awful. This guy knows how to do architecture, and there are others as well. But let me tell you, to get work through 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was very difficult. And I've had a pretty rough spin in getting it through. But it was wonderful when the award came through that it won the case and it was able to be constructed. And many of those buildings are, are up and running now, and uh, we're going to be talking about one of those buildings that almost went to the Land and Environment Court. Uh, the council wasn't prepared to pass it, so they sent it to the historic buildings. Uh, and, uh, and the historic building said it doesn't comply with the local environment plan, but it's not in the local environment in terms of a historic area, and the architect should be allowed to do the, wo the, the work he wanted to do. And so they passed it, and that's the Simpson Lee House. Well, we're going to talk about that in a moment. I just I wondered why whether you had any thoughts on why it's so hard to get architecture up and over the line as a as a creative art. Is it a cultural problem here? Is it as you've alluded to one of regulation and authority? Um, do, do you think people get why architecture is such an important part of our society or not? Um, you know that there. Are Several answers to that question. One of the things is education. You know, I don't know what it is in Victoria, but in New South Wales, unless you're doing art at high school, that is the only area that you have any study of 
architecture at all. And one of the problems is that if architecture is not studied like any subject, then we know what we like and we like what we know. But unfortunately, there are things beyond that which we know. And I can tell you, I've designed a building here in Melbourne, which is going to be discussed today, and members of the community, some of them, were really, really uh, uh, unhappy about it until they saw it. And all of a sudden, having lived with it, I couldn't get greater support. So it's, it's a cultural thing as mm. much as anything, and it's educational. This is one of the problems. And I think the same thing goes for art. It's like any of the, the, the pursuits. Unless one has had exposure to it, one is not going to understand it. I remember my father taking me to the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and there was a Picasso, and he started laughing. And I said, What's, what, what are you laughing at? He said, I think this guy's crazy. Mm-hmm. And I said... Okay, why? He said, I think he's crazy, but the work is great. He said, I'm laughing because it tells more about me than it does about the subject. And I think that's a real case for most of us. Our opinions are more about ourselves than an understanding of the subject. Mm. It's interesting. It's, it's a struggle. And um, some of those buildings that you've alluded to in, here in Melbourne have reduced architecture to silly shapes and bright colours and and they're prolific, unfortunately, on our skyline. Um, I'm going to indulge myself today. Uh, There are a few of Glenn's buildings that I find that I'm drawn back to again and again for for different reasons. Um, Glenn and I both love to draw and we draw with pencils, pens, not computers. And the Simpson Lee House... Uh, in New South Wales is a compellingly, beautifully documented building. I encourage all architects here to have a really close look at the way that's been documented. It's spectacular. It's a, it's a tribute to you, Glenn. I want to quote you, quote you back at you, which I never like ha- when, when it happen, happens to me, but this is what you said about that house. It was my intention to make ex- an exemplar of how modernism can ameliorate living so can you talk about that for us for a minute? Well, it's a house that's located in native Australian bushland. It's on the edge of an escarpment, set back from that edge in what is UNESCO World Heritage Blue Mountains National Park. It was very important that the building not dominate the valley. What one did not want was to to be a walker in the valley or anybody in the valley and look back in what is a pristine valley and see a building. That was extremely important. The building is amongst Eucalyptus oreades and Eucalyptus blacksandii. The oreades is a silver white tree trunk. It is dominant in the area. It was very important for me to actually have a building where the structure had a clarity in the way that our flora does. Much of our flora is so strong. It is so so beautiful in its clarification of the essential. When you start to look at its structure and the leaves, and many of the leaves in our trees on the stem will turn their leaf edge to the east 
as the sun rises during the summer period and the leaf will track the sun during the day. And as that leaf tracks the sun, then it reduces transpiration, of course, but a lot more light gets through. Unlike the flora of European trees that turn their face to the sun, our leaves tend to put out their edges to the sun to reduce that transpiration. But out of that, you get a beautiful transparency in the landscape and a legibility of structure in the landscape. And I wanted a building that had that legibility of structure. I wanted the delicacy at the edges like the leaves of our trees. This is not biomimicry. This is just taking the general essence of the place. Of the, of the structure of that landscape. And for the structure to read together with all these structure of these beautiful Oreades trees, which are just so beautiful. I then wanted to be able to enter the house across a platform. And I discovered that the, the site that we chose was the direct way the Aboriginal people moved through the site to go into this valley. We were on a glade. And so I was able to put through the house, like if any of you have been to Kakadu or the National Parks of Australia where the Aboriginal sites are, you'll see that the overhanging rocks, the Aboriginal people would enter at one end, often ask for permission from the guardian spirit to enter, to go through the cave, this big overhanging cave with the underside coming like this and open to the valley that goes down below. So beautiful that I wanted to be able to go through the house in the way the Aboriginal people walked. So the house is in many ways like an Aboriginal cave or a cave, natural cave that the Aboriginal people occupied. And so you enter it one, one side and you can walk straight through the house and out the other side and continue into the valley. Or you can stop where the roof comes down and re returns back in under, which gives you uh, refuge. So... It contains both prospect and refuge, a very important ingredient in architecture, both prospect and refuge. One or the other, without the other, is leading to failure. You see so many buildings with verandas that are just tucked on the edge. Very rarely you see people use them. You've got to be able to produce that refuge together with the prospect. So that was very important for me. The clients, wonderful people, Simpson Lee, both Geelam, late Geelam and Sheila, instructed me that they wanted a house that had a secular monastic quality. Interesting idea. Secular and monastic. They didn't want, for example, a Corbusier chaise lounge in the front. I have one. But I just love them. As for what they were designed in the 1920s, it's a fantastic <laughs> piece of furniture. But they were absolutely anti-status, totally anti-status. So the house had to have two sleeping spaces. It had to have a combined living, dining and kitchen. And in a fire zone, we had to have a good body of water. And in 1993, I was designing buildings in fire zones that meet almost completely the requirements of, of flame zone of today. 
that was very important. The, the dam between the, the main building and the, and the utility building is part of that strategy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so it's an overflow? It's an uh, yeah. overflow of water from the roof and it's absolutely integral to the safety of that area. And not only that, fire came up both sides of the house. The sprinkler system protected the house completely and the local fire brigade took one-third of the water of the 120,000 litres to save other adjacent properties. The, the, thing, the, the two things that, I, that I'd um, add to your d description of your own work in that instance are, are a sense of order and a sense of proportion. They're very old-fashioned ideas that... that I see being lost out of out of the architectural lexicon now, but they regulate the building and they enable the building to be what you described before. Do you do you do you place much currency on those two things? Oh, entirely. I think one of the things we've lost is a real understanding of structure. I and mean, you look at this building here, and there's a and beautiful clarity of structure how it all works. And I think for a building to show how it works is very important. I mean, we understand how our fingers work. We understand how our arms work. We understand how our bodies work. You look at an animal, you understand a, a live animal, how it works. It's so, it's so beautiful. It is really extraordinary. And I think structure is extremely important and it must be an integral part of the whole. It can't be a thing that's just put up there to hold the building up. It is actually an, an integral part, together with proportion, is very important. A scale is very important. To be able to have a scale that drops down, that becomes a seating scale, a scale for standing, a scale for entry, these are different scales. And I think that's become lost as well. Do you, do you think they're lost via the computer as a, as a methodology? That's a loaded question. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very loaded question. Um, Johanny Palasma, the Finnish architect, great writer, written books like The Eyes of the Skin, written books like The Thinking Hand. The Thinking Hand was, was reviewed by the Guardian newspaper in London and said to be the most important book for young architects and thinking older architects written in the last 30 years. He says, how can you get any emotion out of a mouse? With a pencil, you can get beautiful order. Drawing gives you beautiful perspective, gives you understanding of material, gives you an understanding of space. When I draw a line like that, and I draw a column like that, and I put something on like that, I understand that space. I've visualised that space. And one of the great problems with the computer is that, and I teach, and let me tell you, the students tend to think that if I do a plan and they do an elevation and some sort of a section, they've got architecture. Well, I'm sorry, you've missed the whole point. They do a perspective of it and it's too late. The perspective must be here while you're doing this, this, this and this. This must be the order of the perspective, otherwise your freedom is lost. The computer is a very smart tool. I use it for all my word processing. 
for all the letters I get from students who would like a job that I can't employ. These, so it is a wonderful, wonderful tool. It is, however, not a design method. You are in control. I'm not suggesting that you can't design using a computer. Renzo Piano, on the other hand, in his office, he has an A2 board beside every computer, computer, and he says to everybody working on his projects, you will put it on the drawing board before you put it into the computer because he believes that if you put it on the drawing board, there's a much better chance of you understanding the three dimensions of what you're drawing than if you go straight to the computer. So The biggest problem with the computer is a lack of understanding of scale. Yeah. Scale is the thing that's been lost with the computer. You'll see people putting six-metre-high ceilings in a house. It's unbelievable. I just can't understand. And I say to my students, put a person in. Show me how big a person is. And they put the person in. I said, do you really want a six-metre-high ceiling in that? They said, no. Well, I said, well, why do you do it? Mm. So is it Simpson, the Simpson Lee documentation, if, if anyone here has seen the El Crocus, I think I, I think in our in our discussion a few years ago, you you said that you really nailed that set of drawings. If you look at the drawings, you see an architect building the building as they're drawing. It's they're quite compelling and quite inspiring, um, and and I suspect that's your methodology, Glenn. That you you build as you draw, and you imagine as as you and the drawings become a crafted version that is then quite easily translated into the building site. Um. <clears throat> Sean, it's, you're absolutely right. Um, I don't put a line on that drawing that I don't understand. Every line represents some space, material, finish, uh, proportion. Every line has a meaning. And I'm very conscious of the construction. Look, my father was a builder, a good builder. He had a workshop. I worked in the joinery shop from the age of 12 years. Every school holidays, whilst I resented it at the time, he said to me, when you're 35, son, you'll appreciate what I've done for you. Yeah. Well, he was right. Um, I didn't appreciate it so much at the time, but I did learn to build racing sailing boats, uh, fantastic laminated, laminated form shell boats, fantastic experience, building boats, building model aircraft, designing them. My uncle was, was in the Second World War uh, as an instructor in aircraft taught me how, how aircraft were, were, were able to stay up, about positive pressure and negative pressure. These sorts of things are very important in my thinking about how air moves around things. And that comes from not only sailing, which I participated, but also flying, very important. All these things about wind and how it w works over topography, together with water and how water moves when it comes to a peninsula. These sorts of things, it's about nature. And when you start to work with nature, not against nature, you roll with the punches, and it's a wonderful thing. Many of my buildings in the landscape, people think they're objects in the landscape. Yes, they are, in a sense, some of them objects in the landscape, but they are more related to an instrument. For example, in a composition, in, in music, there's a composer, then there's the orchestra and the conductor and the audience. In architecture... I found that the occupant is the audience, the building is the instrument, and nature is the music. And to be able to open up and smell 
the smell of freshly cut green grass with water on it, or to hear a bird or see a bird just outside, to hear the bird and be very close to it and they can't see you. These sorts of things in relationship to nature, it's really, really important. It's almost a priority for me that the buildings breathe with the landscape, breathe with the nature. Very important. That's a, that's a good segue into the next project, which is the Alderton House in the Northern Territory. But before that, I just wanted to share an anecdote that, I, that I, I'm happy to share. I shared it in a lecture at Sydney Uni a, a few months ago. So Glenn and I were in his drawing office and I was looking around and we we're talking, just talking like we're talking now, talking architecture. And I, um, at, at that time, we had one project on the go in the office, a small house edition up in Carlton, the greenhouse. I came back to the office the next day and I said, we're not working hard enough. We're not doing enough drawing and we're not investigating detail enough. And you can sense by Glenn's passion and enthusiasm that that, that energy comes back at you in the, in the architecture and you see it and, and you take pleasure in the consideration for the detail and the resolution that it, that's in his work. So it, with the Alderton House, which is... Another building of yours that I look at a lot and I admire a lot. Um, tell us a bit about the procurement process because it was pretty fraught. The, the government weren't, weren't exactly easy to deal with. This is a house in the Northern Territory for an mm. Aboriginal couple. Uh, yes, it was uh, for uh, Bundak Marika, Bundak Mambra Marika and her husband who was the Australian, uh, European-Australian Mark Alderton. And I happened to be up in Yirrkala, which is far northern Australia, 11 degrees south of the equator, the monsoonal tropics. It was 1988 and Gough Whitlam uh, was opening the cultural centre. And I thought this is a great opportunity to get, to get up and see some Aboriginal country, country. On the flight up, on the plane, I couldn't believe it. But was Bundak, Mark, and her children. And I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going home. And I said, where's that? She said, I'm going up to Yurikala. I said, that's where I'm going. Oh, she said, this is amazing. Anyway, we had met in Sydney. And I had been at a series of lectures about Aboriginality. And Bundak was one of the people giving that lecture. And she was staying in a house I'd designed for the uh, fashion designer, Jenny Key. And she said, I love Jenny's house. I can lie down in the living room beside the fire and I look out into the landscape and I can see who's coming and I can see who's going. I can see the horizon. I can see the weather patterns. She said, I love it. Is there, if there's any chance that you would design for me a house, I would take it. And I said, where? And she said, in Yerikala. So everything came together. This was two years later. I was on this plane and she said, look, most of the people are not allowed down onto the spit where I've got the land. But she said, I, I've got permission for you to come down. So I went down onto the site, saw the site and she told me about the brief she wanted. She told me about the sort of house that was appropriate for her. And I got working on it. I said, now, how's the finance going to be onto this building? And she said, well, there, there is 
a, a, a sum of money of something like $130,000, which is equivalent to around about $80,000 in southern money because everything is about 130 to 150% more or more than that even. And we'll go from there. And I said, to get that money, what do you have to do? And she said, well, we've just got to submit the plans. And so I designed it. And we submitted the plans and the authority said, no, we can't give you the money. Uh, you haven't secured your architect in the appropriate way. Your architect's supposed to submit his uh, fees and we choose the architect with the lowest fee. And I don't know that he's, got the lo he's going to have the lowest fee. Well, I did it as an honorary architect, so you can't get much <laughs> cheaper than that. Um, and so did my engineer do it as an honorary engineer. Can't get cheaper than that either. Anyway, it took us about two years to get this thing approved and it could only come when my clients wrote to the government and said that we are not getting funds and it's because we haven't gone through the traditional uh, uh, securing of the architect uh, for our services and we've got a building that we can afford to have built. Anyway, we regard it as discrimination and we'll write to the national government unless we get the approval. Well, the approval came through in the next month and we got it through. But it was, again, another hell of an effort. The building then was built down north of Sydney in Gosford, fantastic English guy who put this thing together. We assembled it in, in Sydney to make sure it all, all the components worked together. It went up in two uh, containers, including the builder's complete joinery shop of machines for doing things. It arrived with two, two, two containers, everything in it, the two containers, and the whole thing was bolted together and put together and it was absolutely fantastic the way it came together. Fully, fully prefabricated. Yeah. So there's a few things about this building that are intriguing um, and, they, and they're, they're deviations from the line of work that you were doing at that time. Um, one is in the brief for the building where um, at any given time the, the house had to accommodate between one and 20 people. Uh, I'll, get, I'll go through them and you can talk to each of these. The breezeway is removed from your planning party and, and in, in earlier houses and subsequent houses, the breezeway is a really important part of the plan. So you couldn't do a breezeway in this. And there, there's no rainwater collection. So that another key element in your work, the rainwater tank's missing. So talk to us about those three forces on the plan of this building. Mm -hmm. Well, in Northern Australia, you've got prevailing winds. You've got the the summer wind, which is coming from the northwest, which are the trade winds, which of course what the Macassans used to use, and you've got in the uh, the uh, winter the southeast winds which take the Macassans back uh, northwest, and so the house has prevailing northeast southwest winds. The temperatures during the daytime vary from 33, 34 in summertime, with about an 80 to 90 percent humidity during the day, and drops down to about 23 at nighttime. In wintertime, the temperature rises to about 25, 26 and drops at night time to around about 19, 20 degrees. So the most important thing for Aboriginal people is that when they're moving along an access way to be able to look out, when they go into a room to be able to look out, to see nature, they need to be able to see the horizon, who's coming, who's going, what animals are on, uh, at the sea, what animals are gifting themselves. 
also very important to the, to the Aboriginal people, is the totem system, the, the, the banyan tree. The living room had to be beside Bunduk's father's ban, uh, totem, which was the banyan tree. The children must sleep to the east of the parents sleeping west. The parents sleep west as a consequence of being the end of the day, the nearest, the end of the day, the sun dying, nearer to death for the parents. The children to the east at the beginning of the day, the future. So you have to planning strategy, children to the east, parents to the west. Grandchildren, where they're very young, the daughter sleeps on the mother's side, the son sleeps on the father's side. So there are very clear uh, principles. In the initial design, I had a, a, a walkway that went beyond the house where the bathroom was because there are such things as poison relatives. Poison relatives are those too close to you genetically. Uh, In-laws are poison relatives. Um, they are in our society in some <laughs> cases. And so when I designed this so the ventilation would go out through there and remember that some of the poison relatives can't use the same toilet, can't use the same plates, can't use the same bathroom. So I had this designed out separate from the from the house. And Bundak said to me, she said, look, I love the idea, but if I got to go to the toilet at, at midnight, do I have to walk out there? And I said, yes. I said, because it's... It's safe and it's got all the breezeway and it's everything is working in what you've told me. Oh, she said, but what about the entry of evil spirits? And all of a sudden there was a whole new pattern mm. about evil spirits. Now, evil spirits come out when there is no moon or there is no fire. So in darkness, the evil spirits are present. I had to rethink this whole process, completely rethink it. Then came the position of the kids. The daughters must sleep nearest the parents. So the, the first line of, of bedrooms nearest the grandparents to the east of the parents for children, are the daughters. Then the sons come after that. Then there are blades that come out from the house which then break the eddying or make the eddying of the wind which brought, breaks down the, 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 the force of the cyclones. We're in, we're in Category 4 cyclone um, and to Category 1, between Category 1 and category four, ca category 4. So we've got tremendous wind forces to deal with. I was able to find out from Queensland a wonderful system called the Venturi. It's a Venturi wind extractor, which then equalises the pressure between inside and outside and you don't get buildings exploding. The walls were sometimes plywood, the walls were sometimes slat. The important thing about the slat is that during the daytime you can look out and see what's happening. 25 millimetre wide, 6 millimetre gap, 10 millimetre thick slat. You can look out and the gap seems 25 and the slat seems seems 10 it's just reverse and you can't see into the house so for aboriginal people who require privacy you can look out but can't see in so when relatives come they sit outside very politely coming from elko island or somewhere like that and they turn their back to the entry and they wait there for 10 or 15 minutes after 10 or 15 minutes, you know they're there, but you're not ready to receive them. They go away. In the meantime, my clients will go out, fish, do what they have to do, get the food, so the relatives come back the next day, and then they're invited in. These are beautiful sorts of ideas. And then 
the bed was a sleeping pod that s s went out from the building. Um, a, 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 a bed which is 2.2 2 metres, 2.2030 metres long and off the floor by 450 with a gap. Again, my client said, but you've got a gap under there. And I said, well, that's for ventilation, Bunduck. She said, but I'm going to get evil spirits coming through there. I said, well, how do we deal with it? This is when the building was up. <laughs> she said, oh, well, all we need is a bit of mesh. I'll just get some mesh some gal galvanised mesh, and the mesh was only about that sort, of, that sort of square. That was enough to stop the evil spirits. Now, these are sort of things that when you're dealing with cultures within your own nation, I all of a sudden realised I'm the foreigner. I'm the foreigner in this nation. And here are these people, Northern Australia, the real people of this country, and I'm the one that's having to learn. And I learned an enormous amount because I was a white man and I learned about a lot of the, the women's things, the women's issues were very important to learn about. It was fantastic. There's, there's a, a lovely... Um, a, a lovely, almost ethereal quality about that particular building because of that approach to ventilation and air movement. So everything's floating. The, the cabinet work floats above the floor and the, and the little mesh grills underneath lift everything. Nothing's quite connected in that building, which gives it a, another quality, which is a very... It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's got a modernist sense about it. So there's, there's European and Aboriginal um, overlap there that's quite fascinating. And that, that, the reason that's one of the projects that I look at again and again is because that building was completed the same year that I started my practice and you can see in my work things like slats and louvers and lifting panels that uh, exist in that building. The privacy fins appear in, in the third project that I want to talk about too, which is the Boyd Visitor Centre the, at Bundanon. Um, and they and they become a, an almost graphic element. That's for those of you who don't know, that's the project in, in New South Wales on, on um, Arthur Boyd's property that's a visitor centre that um, Glenn did with Wendy and uh, Reg Lark. Um, and he's he's far too polite to say what I'm about to say, but I'm a, I'm a bit of a stirrer. So I'm not happy that he's not doing the next project there that's recently been announced. And, um, and I think that's a... Pity, and it's a problem that we have in in supporting architects and architecture in an ongoing sense. Um, he's still practicing this guy here, and he's still doing great work. And we're going to hear about his latest project um, in a minute. But to me, that that there's an ethical issue there, and that's one of, of responsibility to the author of a work that exists on a site. So I've just embarrassed Glenn by saying that, but I would would like to have seen him. Um, commissioned to do the next stage of, of that project. Um, that is an interesting building for me, Glenn, because you bring concrete into the mix and you use concrete quite profoundly in that project and the mosque, which we'll talk about in a minute. So tell us why you, you picked on concrete, having spent a lifetime in steel on that building. Steel and timber. And timber. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Well, m many of the projects up till then were domestic scale projects and one uses brick and timber and, and steel and uh, uh, they were just entirely appropriate materials to be working with. Um, when one goes into a building that requires fire rating, 
then one's got to start thinking about other materials such as brick and concrete. Now, we had a, a limited dimension on the site and all of a sudden I thought, well, we can do a 150 wall or 230 brick wall, 150 in concrete or 230 in, in brick. There were so many cross walls that this added up to metres in the length of the building. The building stretched out across the site, along the site, with the orientation on the axis of the Shoalhaven River, a most beautiful site. Now, until then, we were doing timber buildings in, on another site altogether. I was very unhappy about it. I was worry, worried about it because of fire requirements. But more than anything, I had a plan that showed that one of Boyd's buildings up the hill was actually straddling the boundary between Boyd's land and the, the Commonwealth land. And we didn't really have a proper survey. I'd, Wendy, Reg and I had worked on this nearly three months into it when finally we got the survey plan. And the survey plan showed that I was absolutely right. But worse than that, we had been working on Crown land. <laughs> it wasn't the Boyd's property at all. Oops. <laughs> and I, you know, young architects, you make sure you get that survey early on. <laughs> now, I had known that and we had asked for that survey early on but they couldn't get it because there were no references, reference points to get across. It's so remote. I, I, I just... That's, that's sage advice. That's very good advice for all architects, young and old. <laughs> Make sure you're building on the site. Um, it does help. It helps. I, I want to encourage young architects here, again, to get their hands on that old crocus and have a close look at the window detailing on this building. And, and the, the um, correlation between the window detailing and the privacy fins, which, which are repeated, the, the only comparison that I can draw in, in having studied that detail is Elvarelto. And the evolution of that, that level of, of rigorous investigation into, into a tectonic element in a building is, is handled with sublime skill in the Boyd Centre. It, it's, it, all architects should study the detailing. It's so subtle and so sophisticated and, and adds a complexity to a simple plan party. So tell us a little bit about that, Glenn, just, mm. just briefly. Yeah. If one is going out on a limb and the Boyd Centre was going out on a bit of a limb, whilst I had been able to use these same sort of fins on the Marika Alderton house, we were now looking at another thing. We wanted to do a building, and I refer to we as Wendy Lewin, Reg Lark and I, in equal collaboration, decided that we required two, th three things. We required privacy for each of the rooms. We required good light into each of the rooms and we required good ventilation into the rooms. It's one of the few buildings that faces due east. And so in the morning, you're going to get very good light into the building, but during the day, the rooms reduce in their ability to get light. But these blades that go out beyond pick up the light 
from the northern sky by midday and bounce that light still into the room. Picking up the northeast winds prevailing, summer breezes, southeast winds, these blades pick those winds up, which are very important. So we get bounce light, we get very good ventilation from it. But the other thing is it's for kids from the ages of, of 9 to 17 or 18. Now, you know, 9-year-old kids in a co-ed situation or 12-year-old kids in a co-ed situation in the building Boys are nasty little devils <laughs> and they're going to want to look into the girls' rooms. Now, with these blades coming all the way out, to actually go and get anywhere close enough into the room, you've got to actually walk into the space. It's too embarrassing. You get caught. One thing we did not realise at the time of designing was that the hill that went up behind us, the boys could get up the hill and look down into the shower rooms. So... <laughs> we decided to put in obscure glass. That was one error we made in that uh, realisation a little later. But the blades were very important in terms of framing. Boyd's work is framing the mountains, framing Riversdale Mountain, framing many of the landscape elements. And so we wanted windows that actually framed. So when you looked out of a window that was facing east, and by the way, there's a window that's horizontal that runs the length of the bed or the end of a bed, so that if the kids have been up till 10 or 11 o'clock at night time, let me tell you, by 8 o'clock the next morning, that sun is belting in and that'll wake you up in no time. You'll be to be bed by 7 o'clock the next night if you're a 9 or 10-year-old. And it actually works. But there's the several systems. There's the one which is a fixed window above the bed so you can look out. The windows above that have flaps in them that allow ventilation or you can open them up and produce further framing. So the windows are about framing, about privacy, about light, I about think wind vent, ve ventilation, all those things. There's, a, there's a, an, a comment I'd add to that and that is there's an example of an architect um, mastering the art of architecture a problem, a defined problem, a problem solved, a problem turned into an, a virtue and an asset that becomes a rigorous element in the building. That's a, 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 a master architect at work. And so when you when you examine that building, the the rhythm of those privacy fins, the complexity of the of the window detailing, um working with a material pretty much for the first time concrete. Um, it's a spectacularly good building on a on a very beautiful site. There's a there's a, a a lovely external staircase on that building, sandwiched between two off-form concrete walls. And in a recent visit to um, a, a small project that Glenn's been working on down here for ten years, I noticed that element repeated in what I think is the minaret on the mosque as you approach. So just quietly over the last decade, um, Glenn's been working on, I think it's his biggest building um, down here, and it's a, it's a mosque for the, um, for the Islamic community um, on the other side of the Westgate Bridge. Uh, I had the pleasure um, of, of barging up to the site. We were on our way to a site meeting. This, uh, halfway over the bridge, the site meeting was cancelled. I said, well, let's go and have a look at Glenn's mosque. We'll get over and we'll do a big U-turn. And the site foreman... Uh, took us on a on a on a the most exquisite tour I think I've ever been taken on um, a builder so proud of his work so uh, enamored with the the design so willing to give up time to to take um, architects through the building 
Um, it's it's an e- extraordinary it's an extraordinary thing to see because it it's, seems so familiar on a certain level. The the rigor of detail, the effort that's gone into this project. Um, it, it's 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 also got another aspect to it, which is the engagement with the community that. Um, that has come via Glenn's involvement. I know you've spoken publicly here in Melbourne um, recently and, and, and in the exhibition, but if you could indulge us for just five minutes and then we'll open the floor to questions. Just tell us a little bit about that project, please, Glenn. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I chaired the jury for His Highness the Aga Khan for the awards in the, in the Islamic world of architecture. And... Two years later, I had a phone call. It was November, uh, about 2004 or thereabouts. And it was from Michael Zarr, who was not exactly from the community, but who represented the community in assisting them in finding an architect. And he said, look, we had contacted uh, the Aga Khan site and we were looking for an architect internationally. And we noticed that there was an Australian who chaired the jury, and he obviously is not anti-Islamic for him to chair such a jury. So why don't we give him? Why don't we look up and see what he's done? Well, they looked up. I don't have a web, but there are a few things on the on on the computer on the web that I've done and that come up. Other people have put them up there. I don't know how they get there, but they <laughs> they get there somehow. And they said, "Oh, this is somebody who's reasonably well known. Let's make contact." And so they made contact and. I said, I'd be most interested to talk to you about it. And I, I, I said, the best thing is I'll come down, but I want you to find an architect in Melbourne, preferably a younger architect um, of Islamic background. And I said, yes, we can do that. And, and so we made the time and I came, I came down and I met a most wonderful young architect, Harkin Elevely. Harkin is the most wonderful young guy to be working with. He has carried the day-to-day things right through. Marvellous young man, absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'm as old as his father and uh, uh, he sees me as very much as the senior member of the profession. Well, I'm probably pretty senior as I'm over <laughs> 80 years old. Uh, I guess that's getting towards senior, isn't it? Middle-aged uh, middle middle architecture. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so we got going with the project thinking about it earlier on and and it was a fan start become a fantastic experience and the community I got closer and closer to and these were the most wonderful group of people I met around about 10 or 15 of them and they were fantastic but there came a point where is this going to be a traditional mosque or is it going to be a modern mosque and so the elders really wanted a traditional mosque and I said well look if it's to be a traditional mosque, I am the wrong architect. Now, I have never rejected a client, but I've rejected myself many times on a project. And I think that's, that's important to be able to state your position. Anyway, there was a, a discussion amongst the community and the community then decided, well, look, the future is for the, the kids. Maybe we've got to have a modern mosque. And, of course, one of the great problems with the mosque is identification. It means a lot of things that are not necessarily what the Islamic people really mean them to be. But 
The minaret means something, the dome means something, and there are meanings for these in the community, but it's not in the Quran. It's These are just cultural things. And so I said, look, I'm not prepared to do a, a real minaret and I'm not going to be doing a dome. And furthermore, I'm not going to have a walled, walled citadel uh, as is the mosque in the Arab community. That becomes exclusive. I want to be able to see that you're making a building that's inclusive, not exclusive. Well, this was a bit of a shock to some in the beginning until I explained that the most important thing is openness, to be able to say to the Australian community, look, at this is us, this is how we pray, this is how we, we do things. And finally, as I said in the beginning, one, there are several members at the beginning were really, and they're in their late 40s, mid to late 40s, were not really on board. But let me tell you, I haven't got support greater by anybody in my whole career than these people. Now the mosque is, is nearly there. They are just fantastic. The important thing about it is that there's, there are two levels. There's a level for women, which I, I accepted that this is, a, this is a cultural thing. But what I have done, I've put, a, as you alluded to, a staircase between the upper level and the lower level. And this provides the potential for interaction between the men and the women. And I've said, I hope that within my lifetime, I'm lucky I've got another 10 years, that somebody will come from upstairs to downstairs or somebody from downstairs to go upstairs. So there's going to be an establishment of a new way of dealing with it. Now, there's a new typology in this building, the openness, not going in through a door into a wall garden, but there's still a wall, there's still a garden, there's still a garden at the end. So there are going to be lotus plants at Mecca end. The building is oriented towards Mecca. White lotus and yellow water poppies are going to be in the end garden. Pink lotus at the beginning of the entry. The ablutions are exposed to the outside. Everything is pretty much open, but we're also going to have, a, there's going to be another part of the complex, restaurant. The restaurant is for the public to use. The council look as if they're on board. I've asked that the building, because there's a park in front, maybe we can have a lawn that goes from the width of the building all the way to the street. And in that lawn, we can put at a certain divisions a water pipe underneath where once a week the water comes through that and will make the grass greener in certain bands. And that'll be the, the relationship between one of the... Uh, um, uh, market buildings. So on Fridays, the, the, the Fridays are prayers day. The, you'll have markets along, and there'll be buildings in between these. And then you've got this beautiful lawn before the building, landscape, and then certain times be market all the way right to the mosque. The intention is for everybody to be able to come in who wishes to come in to respect the Islamic requirements of cover, of shoulders and and the head for women, but. Come into the building and pray to your God is their view. The imam is fantastic. He's the most wonderful man. He wants people to come in from all faiths to be able to use this building. He structured 
an event in Melbourne that he works with the other members of the community, of the faithful community of different religions, to talk about the things in common. We had the Aboriginal people turn the first sods in the thing. We had other church members coming at the turning of the first sods. This is the beginning of possibly something very special. It is very exciting. I didn't, didn't intend it to be like that. I just wanted it to be something that was not going to be alienating to the Australian population. I wanted it to be a building that was actually welcoming to all people of our country. So the, the, for those of you who haven't been to the building, the approach and, and Glenn's idea of openness is masterfully handled one of the hardest things you can do in architecture is is transition levels seamlessly and enter a building without even realising that you've had a, a subtle change in level that's DDA compliant, that is easy to do. Um, it's beautifully handled. The concrete work is excellent. It's exciting to see. And, and again, um, enhanced by an idea that I think I first saw in your work in the Lightning Ridge project, and that that is these remarkable light cannons that are throwing light into the main prayer hall. Mm. So maybe maybe just talk, talk a little bit, bit about now. that before yeah. we throw the floor open to questions. Right. In the Sunni faith, the numbers, odd numbers, 1357911, are important numbers. Two, four, sixes and eights are not the numbers to be considered. Uh, there was one Muhammad, there's one Allah, uh, not two. So you start off with the one, three, five, seven, nine, and and uh, right, recognise that when Hark and I were designing this in the building, it's three bays wide and it's a, a five bays this way. And uh, also realising that in a building like that, in, in three bays this way, five bays this way, if you put a structure in like that rather than straight like that, it produces a whole series of triangles between the structural elements. And those triangles then can be oriented north, south, east and west so that if you project that triangle up, one face will be the hypotenuse of the triangle, so it's like that, with that there's a hypotenuse, and that's where a coloured glass will be. So you get coloured glass facing south will be blue, facing east is, is yellow, facing north is green, and facing west is red. Why the colours? Each of the colours represent, in the Islamic world, uh, uh, there has a, uh, there's a meaning for it. Green, for example, in the Arab world, in the desert, represents life. It's where the water is, where the oasis is, so that's life. Yellow, the morning light, is where um, is paradise. In, in West, it's blood. Blood is strength. So that's the red. And the blue is about the sky and the water, which represent infinity. And these are things that were very important. So that in, in different seasonal times, when the sun rises south of east in summer and sets south of west in summer, then it's going to be a predominance of the blue coming through. As the sun rises, the eastern morning light throws yellow light in. As it goes around to the north, it flows, throws the green light in. And as it goes west, it bounces the red light in. So these are colours of the Islamic world. If you look at the Islamic flags, I hadn't realised it, but you'll see there's white, 
red, black, and green, um, and yellow. These these are the colours, and so. The community didn't realise this. I, I decided I'd investigate colour in the Islamic world and all of a sudden this came up and I, th I said, do you know about this? And nobody that I uh, spoke to knew anything about it. Well, I all know about it now. So that's <laughs> quite a nice thing to be, uh, be able to te teach the Islamic world a little bit about their colour. It's very, it's very, very beautiful. And there's a documentary coming up on the ABC. I think it's on the 6th of December. Yeah. So um, keep, keep your eyes open for that. And before I throw the uh, the the um, Glenn, I, I the, throw over to the audience for questions. What I was trying to say, um, can I just say thank you? And your work is extraordinary. It makes the world a better place, and we're all better for it. So thank you very much, Glenn. Well, thank you, Sean, as well. Now, um, for, for, for 10 or 15 minutes maximum, if there are any questions, uh, please. You've got a, you've got, there's a roving mic if anyone would like to ask Glenn a question. Uh, thanks, thanks so much for the talk, uh, the conversation. It was uh, really wonderful insight. Um, I want to start by sort of repeating six or five points that you made throughout the course of the, the talk. Um, the first one... It's a, it's a question, not a lecture, so... <laughs> quick, 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 quick yeah. ones. The first one was about education and knowing what you like and liking what you know. Point two is about saturation of form, colour, or as you put it, Glenn, uh, merchandise. And then in both of your work, an obsession with detail and tectonics, a fascination with landscape and climate. And finally, the point that you made, Glenn, about a feeling of foreignness in your own country. Um, you know, uh, the question is, how do we overcome this sense of foreignness and begin to engage uh, critically, both culturally and physically, with uh, the Australian and Australian architecture? Oh, um it's almost the subject of a thesis, isn't it? <laughs> uh, look, I have learnt through observation. Reading is one thing, but observing is another thing, to observe the Australian landscape. Now, Europeans have mucked up a lot of the Australian landscape. Where I've been working, out of Sydney... There's an enormous amount of landscape still there, and it's because of the topography. Much is too hard to get to, too hard to develop. Aren't we lucky? <laughs> uh, so we've got a lot of that landscape, and I, I alluded to some of those things about uh, understanding the structure of the landscape, understanding the, the type of flora we have, and it varies according to the, the, the latitude that we're in and relationship to the coast, for example. Going from the monsoonal tropics to the to the wet tropics to the subtropics to the warm temperate to the temperate to the cool temperate, then going from coast to high country to the hot arid regions, they're they're all different places and they all require different responses. And I have found that I've I've at least I've attempted 
to find a way of working in each of those places that is appropriate. For example, the Aboriginal house not only required that lightness that I referred to and the ventilation, but also required the, the understanding of the Aboriginal people's psyche. For example, to design a house that is going to be like one of their bark buildings, and I've designed buildings unbeknown to me like their bark buildings, like the museum at Kempsey. It was a bit like their bark building. I had no idea of it. Now, if I did that in their country, they would think I was sending them up. They pride very much in the idea of the Western house, but they also hate the Western house, the way it's planned. So one has to take the understanding of what it is in the, in, in the European Australian building and what it is within the psyche of the Aboriginal person and also the idea of being able to see who's coming and who's going and looking out and not being seen. Once you start to understand those things in principle, then you start to work with the, the things that are real. These are not phony things. These are real things. And I've been very interested in all my life into trying to analyse what is real and what is fake. And we're working today on so much fake. I'm interested in what, to me, I've got to say, is real. And it's real to some others as well. Now, that's all I can, I, I can suggest. We, Glenn and I have talked before about the need for a, an architect it, to be a good architect, to be a good geographer, a good geologist, a good botanist, to be able to observe the landscape, understand the site at a detailed and intimate level before even contemplating a response to it. And I recently gave a talk where I asked the question about what makes an Australian architecture and, and, and just plonking a building in the bush doesn't make that an Australian a piece of Australian architecture. So a lot more goes to it. And you heard Glenn talking earlier about Simpson Lee House and his intimate understanding of, of the landscape and, and the site. So I think maybe that gets somewhere to answering your question. Are there any other questions? There's a question over here, gentlemen. Wait one sec, so we'll get a microphone. <coughs> I come from New Zealand. When I was at university... They let you in? <laughs> oh, I know, just for a limited amount of time, yeah. That's right. As long as you don't talk about the rugby, we'll talk to no, you. My visa expires in 10 minutes, so I better okay, be quick. Yeah, OK. Um, Get it closer to you, can't hear. OK. We were taught at university in Auckland that Glenn Mackett's buildings touched the ground lightly, and that was a phrase. And in New Zealand, we, we have most of our land is sloping, of course, so we either have to dig in... <laughs> and have retaining walls or do pole platform houses which sit on land. I just wondered if you have a philosophy about attacking the land with excavation or whether this touching the ground lightly is very important to you? Mm, okay. Um, uh, let me say that it wasn't one of my phrases. That's <laughs> <laughs> the first thing. It's a phrase that came from uh, a, Brian, a West Australian architect, uh, I shouldn't be saying West Australian architect. I should be saying an Australian architect from the West. But uh, but if you ask a West Australian architect where do they come from, you know, say West Australia, not Australia. Uh, the Brian Klopper said to me, you know, I've looked at your work 
And he says a wonderful statement in the West here, and he said, that is, the Abri- from the Aboriginal people, they say you must touch the land lightly. Now, touching the land lightly is not just putting a building on four columns uh, sitting on four footings. Touching the land lightly goes much deeper than that in Aboriginal terms. It's about where does the material come from? What damage has it done elsewhere? Um, how, how long is the material going to last? Are you protecting the material? Will, will, will it give a lifetime by three of, of service? These are the sort of things about way beyond touching the land lightly that might be a building that looks as if it's touching it lightly. And if you do a huge excavation on the site, where do you take the excavated material? Once upon a time, we used to put it on a barge and take it out to sea and drop it uh, mm-hmm. to sea. You don't do that any longer. Um, I've never done that. Uh, I've always considered that to be really a bad thing to do. If you're going to do an excavation, then one needs to distribute it in a certain way within your limits of your site. Um, If the excavation is necessary, then I guess it's necessary, but very rarely have I excavated. I have done it a few times, but let me tell you, when you've got rainfall coming down at 100 millimetres an hour and you put excavation in Sydney anywhere, in the sandstone layering, you'll get water, and I've seen it come out, water coming out in the order of one and a half to two metres squirting out in that excavation. And one tries to avoid excavating in sandstone because of the layering process. It's a really bad thing. So I have always avoided excavation. I've looked at uh, what are the possibilities of of d- designing just above the ground? I've done houses in Palm Beach in Sydney that are on sloping sites. I've done other sloping sites where the, the floors go down and the roof follows the site. I've done that as well. So I prefer not to excavate, if that answers your question. Oh, that's, a, that, that's an interesting... Glenn's touched on an interesting aspect of his work too. So... Uh, when we were working on Sydney Modern, we learnt that um, the rainfall in Sydney is double the rainfall in Melbourne, double the rainfall. So we, Glenn and I had a conversation about his very early work, a house that he did for his brother. The sloping roof, the pitched roof in Glenn's work is a direct response to rainfall and the reality of rainfall in the area of Australia that he works in. And that, that has evolved into into a strong component of his work. But it's it's actually a direct response to that, isn't it? That's yeah. absolutely the case. I did a house for my brother and my sister-in-law and they loved the house, but the damn thing leaked. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the gutters were big enough, but, you know, every now and again the, the, the downpipes would get blocked and the water would come in and I couldn't bear it. I could simply couldn't bear it. But for my poor brother, I mean, people can take a building that's not working quite so well, but nobody can take a drop of water inside the house. And so there was a sort of a a state of insanity about water coming in. And I felt, look, I've got to get rid of the water. I learnt very quickly. By the way, I learnt it in America as well. I I had a travel grant in 1973 and I visited the work of Craig Elwood and he was very surprised that I should be interested. And he said, because today I'm known as one of the three blind meese. And... (laughs) And that's from, those are not architects. Uh, Mies van der Rohe was one of the architects, a famous architect and a very good one. And Craig Elwood followed me, so that's why he's one of the three blind Mies. And I said to Craig, how do you... I thought America had the great technology, it would advance beyond all, all other, other nations. 
and they had smart glass that, that they could have no eaves overhang and that, that the, uh, the, the, they keep the summer heat out and let the winter warmth in and keep the rain out. And I said to Craig, how do you keep the thermal response of this uh, working well? And he looked at me as if it was the silliest question he'd ever been asked. He said, why? Well, we air condition them. <laughs> <laughs> and... and I realised that the air conditioning produced a pressure in the house that actually helped resolve the water coming in through the windows, and, well, which we didn't have, which I still don't use. <laughs> well, f f um, fa a famous Frank Lloyd Wright anecdote some of you would know is that um, a client of, of Wright's uh, was having a dinner party and the roof started leaking on the, on the table and the client was so incensed that he, he rang the architect and said, Mr. Wright, I'm having a dinner party and, and the roof's leaking all over the dining room table. And Frank Lloyd Wright said, we'll move the table and hung up the phone. Um, uh, any other questions? Yes, question at the front here, microphone. Uh, thank you for the talk. Um, one question I have is more like a request for an advice of yours, which um, from the mosque you can see how the responses are designed can be a turning point culturally, which means the building itself transcend the architecture. What's your advice for everyone to be able to reach an architecture that can transcend the built form? Well, um, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, keep thinking. <laughs> um, question, you know, you must question everything. For example, when, when the uh, clients said that they wanted a minaret, I said... Uh, I understand the minarets for calling prayers. They said, yes, that's right. I said, well, tell me, who in the community is going to be calling the prayers? Oh, no, we don't have calling prayers any longer. I said, but why the, why the minaret? Oh, it's, it's just usual to have a minaret. But I said, it's obsolete. It is totally obsolete. Why would you have that? And I, I then made a silly comparison, a very stupid comparison in a way. But I said, you know, we once had tails and... How would it be we all strapped tails to ourselves because we once had them culturally? It was a real thing. We'd just go around the streets, everybody with a tail. And they thought it was so, so terrible an idea. We got rid of the, got rid of the minaret. Uh, and now we've got a wall that rises up. It's going to have a crest on top. And uh, it, it, they all call it the minaret. So this is a new, new type of minaret, uh, maybe. But it's thought of and seen as a minaret. And I think that's the important thing, is that culturally I've not rejected it. Culturally I have accepted it, but I've said that it has... It, 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 it's done in another way. Now, how, how does this come about? Just keep questioning. When you're working in a society that's not Islamic, you know, it's a very brave thing for them to choose an architect who was not from the Islamic community. But it might have been a very smart thing because it may have resulted in a very Islamic building coming up. And yet I might tell you, people from Islamic community who have lapsed, have come into the building 
and they said they're coming back to the faith as a consequence of the building, which is quite an interesting idea. Other people have said, I feel as if I'm coming into Mecca. Now, coming into an Australian mosque, it's a mosque in Australia, and all I wanted was to go beyond. I, I looked at the things that I felt were alienating in the Islamic building, in the Australian community. Being an Australian, I can look at it and say, that is too identifiably a mosque that's rejecting my wish to go in there. I want to be able to have a mosque that I feel I can comfortably walk into that as an Australian. And that's what that's the only thing I think you can you've got to start putting yourself as one place being an Australian and other place saying, how can this be part of that community? How can be part of this community? And how can those communities come together? And that's what I've been really interested in. Does that answer sort of? Another way of answering that question, and Glenn's answered it beautifully, but everyone benefits from good architecture. Everyone benefits from good design. If it's a good chair, a good tram, a good mobile phone, a good building, the broader community benefit. If we can engage on a project like the mosque with an excellent architect who sees the benefit of good design, then that benefit is shared and that's one of the responsibilities that architects have back to the community at large. We don't build in isolation. We don't design in isolation. We actually design for a wider audience. Mm. We have a client. Other people see the outcome of the relationship between the architect and the client, and, and that responsibility shared means that the world's a better place. It's a really simple formula. Yeah. And the architects must like their clients. I mean... You've got to love your clients. They, the clients are fantastic. My whole friendship base in my career are people who have been clients. It's just wonderful. It's just wonderful. And I can go back to any of those buildings, bar one or two, out of hundreds of buildings I've done. One or two, they wouldn't want to see me and I don't want to see them either. <laughs> Well, that, that's so true, and I've got a, a pretty good client sitting over over there who commissioned a, an M pavilion a couple of years ago. Here's a, here's, a, here's, a, here's a bit of advice for prospective clients in the audience. If you're loyal to your architect, you will get the loyalty back times 10. And a, an, a, an architect devotes themselves to their client. If, the, if there's a symbiosis there and, and that relationship um, is allowed to expand, then what the client does is provide the architect with enough confidence so that they can take a leap of faith and be creative, genuinely creative. So that relationship's so important. If there are potential clients in the audience, remember that when you're talking to your architect for the first time, that the only way you can make great architecture is with a great client. Yeah. Mish van der Rohe said, with every good building, there was a very good client. Mm. So we've got time for one more question, I think. Um, we're running a bit over time, is it? There's a question out the back there. Sorry. Uh, oh, sorry, hi. there's one here. Sorry. Uh, I think the question that I wanted to ask was, um, considering the Islamophobia and the terrorism, uh, do you think it's sensitive to actually take on a project on mosque by a Western architect, um, in your opinion? 
I, I'm sorry, I didn't get the... I, I, uh, considering, considering the timing, yeah, the Islamophobia, yes. and how sensitive people are, yeah. uh, especially from the Western countries, uh, looking at Islam, do you think um, it's, it's good for Western architectures, knowing the sensitivity uh, of what's happening in the world, taking a project like what you have done in yeah. Melbourne, yes. Yeah, okay, I understand the question, yes. Well, um, there has been a huge amount of terrible, terrible, terrible things happening uh, in the name of Islam. Now, if you know people from the Islamic community, they will all tell you these people are straight criminals. They are not of the Islamic faith. They are purely criminals. My clients would attest to that. And my clients are amongst the most beautiful people I have ever worked with. They are just a wonderful group of people who are so upset and so angry about what is happening internationally. They cannot believe what is, what's going on. Now, when I started this project some 11 years ago, um, there wasn't the same problem that we see now. So I started before this whole thing occurred. What is extraordinary to me is that having taken it on and having, to, having tried to respond in a way that is actually not producing something that is reinforcing the idea of separateness between the Islamic community and the Australian community, but rather trying to bring a building about that has a cohesion between the two, I think is a moral responsibility for an architect to take on such a building. So the answer is yes. Thanks, Clint. So there is one more question up, up here. We'll get uh, a... Hi, Glenn. Uh, yeah. Thanks for your presentation. I got one very practical question. Like, as an architect, we try really hard to be like, to do the fantastic uh, detailed construction drawings. But sometimes when you want site, like the builder doesn't build it according to your <laughs> drawings. Like, I'm, I'm shocked it, to hear that. Does it, does it mean you need to be really closely instructed them or like uh, as an alternative, you need to find a really good builder. Uh, I'd, go for, I'd go for the alternative for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, look, um, I have found that even with my early builders, some of them were not so, so great, I'm very determined and I'm very careful about documentation. And I'm very careful about explaining to the builder what I'm doing. And if I've not worked with that builder previously, I take that builder to projects that I have done to make sure they understand the level of detail and finish that I require. In that way, they have a very good understanding from the beginning. But sometimes a builder makes a mistake. Now, on the Boyd Centre... There are a couple of places there where the builder made a few mistakes and you wouldn't find them. Only I know about those. And I use those mistakes against a very good builder who'd been building for me for many years 
who decided he was going to put in a few claims. And I said to him, Yoko, Yoko, a Finnish name, he's a wonderful Finnish builder. I said, here you've made a few mistakes. I have had to spend now four days on a few of those mistakes. Now, my time at that rate works out at X dollars. What's the claim you want to put in? He said, forget it. (laughs) Now, the thing is this, you have to be determined. If you want a building to end up the way you want it, you must draw it. It must be detailed properly. It must be properly worked out so that there can't be any escape for the builder. And the best of builders are the best of people. I just admire so greatly the best of builders. They are so good to be able to do, be able to pick up the drawings and interpret what you've done in exactly the way you want it. It is fantastic. So let me say, if the builder is not doing the details that you've done properly, if you've done them properly, find another builder. <laughs> Can I... Um uh, thank everyone for coming today and can everyone put their hands together and thank Glenn for, for today. Thank, thank you so much. That was great.